for a young boy, it was uh, to see and to sense that, uh, hear that eerie sound of the air raid warning going off. Um, it was a very frightening moment. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Alan Baker worked and studied in East Germany and the USSR from the 1970s through to the end of the Soviet Union and the emergence of the Russian Federation as we know it today. In Moscow, Alan had the opportunity to live and study at the well-known Moscow State University, as well as the opportunity to attend the 54th anniversary of the Russian Revolution Parade in 1971 in Moscow. Now, our reviews help the podcast grow, so if you're enjoying our content, please leave a written review in Apple Podcasts or share us on social media. And if you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute just three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are welcome too. Plus, you get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster, as well as exclusive extras as a monthly financial supporter of the podcast. Wouldn't you like to bask in the warm glow of knowing you are helping preserve Cold War history? I'm sure you would. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Thanks to our latest Patreons, including Mike Chapman, Robert Crom, Michael O'Donnell, and Jeffrey Jones. So, back to today's episode. Our co-host James interviews Alan as he talks of his experiences in the USSR and the GDR. We welcome Alan to our Cold War Conversation. I think probably it's uh, worthwhile just giving you a bit of background before we get into uh, those experiences in uh, either the USSR as it was then or, or East Germany later, because the way I got into that was that I came, I was adopted by actually a, a, a very left-wing family or parents who were... were I guess, formed in the 30s. So they were very much both uh, people who had been involved in the fight against fascism and were formed, obviously, had gone through the Second World War, in which the Soviet Union, of course, was very much on the same side uh, and took the brunt of defeating the uh, Nazi um Nazi Germany. So that was the atmosphere in which I was raised. And of course, it changed dramatically as the Cold War developed, uh, more or less as I was born. And um, what had become, what was acceptable then became in McCarthyite terms, very doubtful if anyone was sympathetic to any of the uh, communist uh, regimes or to the USSR um, and the people who f- were f- considering that uh, peace must be upheld at all price at all costs 
and uh, thought that American tactics of uh, using their and developing nuclear weapons uh, was very dangerous. Bertrand Russell Committee of the Hundred, the development of CND, that was all very suspect in those days. And I think that's important to remember because uh, it was a, obviously in, in the US with McCarthy, a lot of people lost their jobs, very prominent sort of, uh, artists and filmmakers, singers like Paul Robeson. Uh, who was famous the world over, were not allowed to travel. So it was a very difficult atmosphere. And one of my first memories, I'll give you two first memories. Uh, One was uh, the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the sirens went off where we lived. And I remember my parents being totally frightened, having been through the war, obviously, uh, and the bombing, my father having been uh, in the army, um, that this was the real thing. This was nuclear war starting. Um, I don't know why they sounded the sirens, whether it was a practice. Anyway, as we know, (coughs) uh, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis was diffused and didn't happen. Khrushchev removed the missiles from Cuba. So, But it was a very frightening for a young boy... It was uh, to see and to sense that, uh, hear that eerie sound of the air raid warning going off. Um, it was a very frightening moment. Uh, the other moment that sits in my memory was being taken to Trafalgar Square um, to hear Paul Robeson sing, actually, in Tra- when, he, on he, when he first had his passport restored. I don't know whether it be about 1959, 1960, Um, around then he was finally given his passport back after being uh, not allowed to travel as a uh, as a communist sympathizer Um, so McCarthy would have branded him Um, and the um, effect of that uh, uh, concert in Trafalgar Square or I think it was a peace rally but uh, he sang at it and uh, it was a, a, a uh, a neck-tingling experience, and of course he had this fantastic voice and it echoed around the square. Uh, the other thing going on at the time, of course, was the um, CND, development of CND, the Aldermaston marches, um, and uh, I think uh, I went on most of those uh, as a young chap, and, uh, well, as a boy with my parents. So that was the background to me being politically involved in things left-wing from an early age. So your parents must have been very pleased when you were awarded a place at Sussex University in the late 60s. University, I think at that time, that had uh, left leanings. is that fair to say? Yes, it was a, I, uh, it was a, very, it was a very fashionable university, but it was also... Uh, it was a Labour government uh, at, at the time, I think. Um, uh, Harold, Harold Wilson was there, and his uh, the J Twins were on the cover of, of Sunday paper magazines, as and they were at Sussex University. So it was a sort of trendy left place to go, really. But um, I guess that was quite attractive to me at the time as well. But it basically, it also was a very new university where you could do 
unusual combinations of subjects. Uh, so radical, new, and a bit trendy. Yes, seemed a good place to go. What did you study there? Uh, so it's not surprising now I studied history uh, and modern history, and in particular um, history of the 20th century and the uh, uh, origins uh, the 30s, Second World War and origins of the Cold War. But from there, you win a scholarship to Moscow, and uh, yes, well, I then I then did a, I went on to do an MA in Russian studies because um, being particularly uh, interested in Russia and what was going on, uh, and it was through that that I got a scholarship to study at Moscow State University, the great big sort of wedding cake institution. Fantastic on building. What was the absolutely? which was then uh, uh, on what was called the Lenin Hills, um, no longer. Um, and yes, yeah, so it was a, a course for Russian language and culture uh, run for uh, foreign, specifically for people coming from abroad. Uh, and uh, uh, it proved to be an absolutely fascinating year, um, apart from... Being in, living in Moscow for a year, uh, I also had the chance to go to the cent Central Asia, visit Uzbekistan in particular, uh, and to go to the um, the Baltic Republics, part of it anyway, um, which in those days was all part of the Soviet Union. Um, so yeah, we we got around, and we learned some Russian, which was uh, which was great. Uh, being of many nationalities, Russian was then became the common language. And what was it like studying in a Russian university and being a student in Moscow? Did you get up the same kind of perhaps hijinks that other students might get up to yeah, elsewhere? Yeah, I think the hijinks, yeah, certainly, but um, lots of fun. But uh, it was uh, one of the, the uh, strange experiences was that on the, they, wanted to control their students, make sure nothing untoward was going on. So they would have um, what is known in Russian as a babushka on each floor. This would be an old lady, usually an immensely large old lady, who would sit in a central position, could see all down the corridors and was supposed to control, make sure that no one was going in rooms they shouldn't go in or and uh, so that, that that was a really strange experience, but um, in fact, one uh, as is usual, you get round that if you if you try. The other thing I guess that struck me, and I think is interesting in the sense of Russian society and attitudes, was um, the students, the Russian students that we mixed with, um, had. It seemed to be mainly oral exams that they had in order to pass their courses. And there was this quite a sophisticated, which was shocking to me coming from a sort of new, a new university in Britain where it sort of wouldn't, have, wouldn't have occurred to us, but a system of cheating that you sort of wrote some of the answers on, on, on your hand or whatever or took slips of paper in. And there was this... So there was a complicity, uh, I think, we discovered between teacher and student because teacher wanted student to do well so that student, uh, the teacher wouldn't be criticised. Student wanted to do well because they wanted to get on and 
do well. Um, and so there was a uh, there was this system by which you got through not entirely legitimately, and no one questioned it. I think that says a lot about the way Russian society operated then, and I suspect still operates now. Did you enjoy your... You were there for a year. Did you enjoy that year? Oh, yes, very much so, yes. Um, I could hardly fail to really being a group of international students. Um, I think we were mostly, you know, we were left, left-wing left students, and most of us, uh, the, from our maybe from our interest in, in, in the Soviet Union. One of the things that happened while I was there was, and we were... I can't remember the details totally, but I think we were sort of in lockdown, more or less. I can't remember how official that was or how one just felt one ought to keep out of the way. But uh, President Nixon came to Moscow. I think it was in the run-up to signing of the SALT Treaty at the time. Um, but also, of course, the Vietnam War was going on, and the Vietnam War was very much part of my student gen- generation. That was one of the things that... I was at uh, various protests at our university in, in England and, and in London, of course, uh, well-known protests, which um, many of us were part of. Um, so the Vietnam War was a cause celebre, and to think that these uh, pres- that he would be entertained in Moscow, which was uh, obviously uh, the opposite of, of was again was helping the North Vietnamese in their fight with America uh, seemed absolutely not understandable. It was, it seemed to be real politique to the extreme to us at the time, uh, and indeed, in retrospect, maybe too. Um, so that, that was a, a remarkable um, sort of moment in my stay there. The circus, the famous Russian circus, Moscow Circus, because its new building was just down the road. It was near the local underground station um, from where we lived, because we lived in the Wedding Cake building, so we were uh, we were in a corpus of the building. Uh, but to go to town, we had to go to the underground, and the circus was just there, so we got tickets for that. Uh, we had a... Because we were uh, sort of... Uh, because of the nature of what we doing tickets were readily available for the Bolshoi, for the circus, for any other play or whatever that we wanted to read uh, to to see. So it was a wonderful cultural experience. I guess it did break down really into two sections. There was a, there was the uh, the appreciation and the the uh, the chance to get to know Russian society. And how that ticked, and how Russians ticked, and how they thought. As I sort of gave the example of the exam system, which you know uh, was really fascinating, um, but lots of other things. Um, for instance, at that time, because there were terrible shortages, the shops were empty. Basically, the food was dreadful. We had a Starova, a cafe uh, where we ate. But it was also it was meatballs and rice and things like that. There wasn't a green vegetable. I mean, at the time, it didn't really sort of occur to me, but now I'd be horrified. Um, but I did actually get what I think was some version of scurvy. All my fingers all sort of went 
uh, cracked up and started bleeding and so on and so forth. And um, it simply was that fruit and vegetable wasn't around. What you did in Moscow is you never went out without a string bag. Uh, a little ones uh, they didn't have plastic bags in those days, they had string bags, so you could put that in your pocket. If you saw a queue down the road, then you knew something had arrived and it would be oranges from Central Asia or from a from Georgia or somewhere or from wherever, but there might be might be um, uh, watermelons. Whatever came would suddenly come, uh, and everyone would join the queue and produce your string bag, and then you bought you know you bought your watermelon or your uh, uh, whatever it was the fruit. Um, but there was no steady supply. It was you had to you had to do that. Um, did you fraternise with the? Did you did you mix with the uh, Russian students? Were oh, they encouraged yes. to? And well, I, I think there was always a feeling that in our particular corridor, that were these students sort of handpicked to have contact with foreigners. Um, and I think perhaps they were, um, or perhaps some of them were. Um, but in fact, because uh, you're living in Moscow for that amount of time. Um, one cultivated friendships, and, uh, absolutely yes. So, so um, I got to know people and their and their families, which was lovely. And how did Soviet society compare to society in nineteen seventies Britain? Well, it was in a way there was no comparison. I mean, the already in nineteen seventies Britain, you know, I mean, we had. Things were easily available, shops were well stocked and so on. And Soviet society was still this very, it was poor in comparison. On the other hand, I mean, in terms of transport and culture, going to the theatre, I mean, the theatres were fantastic. Uh, and, some, and some of the productions they were putting on, you know, apart from the ballet, that uh, to, uh, were very avant-garde and we got to, follow particular actors and so on who were doing uh, rather uh, sort of revolutionary work in terms of the theatre. And that was all very exciting. Um, so, yeah, funny combination, really, of, of and people lived comfortably and they seemed to source their food. And I think families sort of often had, Dacha in the countryside where they grow vegetables and things. So the, I think the, the, there were ways around it always. Uh, as a foreigner there, when you, if you were just reliant on the sort of local store, then you were a bit hard hit. But it, I think if you lived there, then you knew how to play the system to get what you wanted to get. So, so after a year, you come home, and yes. not long before you're winning uh, a Peace Council scholarship, to the GDR, so you were yes. heading back east again. Yes, well, I came home having really sort of very much fallen in love with Russia. It, uh, it was, it's a very special place. Um, and uh, I came home actually very interested. I thought, well, I don't just want to fly back or train it back as I had going out. I'd gone up on the train, which was an interesting journey in itself. But... Um, so actually, I organised to get a, a ship from uh, what was then Leningrad, now St Petersburg, uh, back to London Tilbury. Oh, amazing! So, trip. so I did a, it, and it was it was a cruise ship that um, 
basically was doing an empty leg of its voyage, but I got a passage on it. And so it was a very romantic way to come sort of steam out of Leningrad and, and down the Baltic and back to London, a nice slow way to readjust, um, slow travel, they'd call it today. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was a very special homecoming. But I guess, uh, you know, after that special experience, uh, it was difficult really to adjust to life back in the UK. Um, can't quite remember, that, but this was this was sort of Edward Heath's time and brushing your teeth in the dark and the things weren't very exciting here at that time. They were mm. they were pretty dire really. Um, so, and there wasn't a lot of, and politically, um, you know, things didn't seem to be moving. Uh, and and I, 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 I um, did odd things for a while and then saw this scholarship and thought, well, I, I think I'd like to try for that. I, I, do, I basically was looking to try and get a, a do a PhD in, in, in history, move on from my MA, and uh, thought, well, this would be a way of starting that process. So what was the piece? It. What was the Peace Scholarship? Um, the Peace Scholarship was was something that had been uh, originated uh, in the name of uh, J.D. Bernal, who was a very famous scientist, crystallographer, but he'd also been involved in... Uh, um, with all the nuclear scientists and so on, but form and was in the forefront of standing up and saying nuclear weapons should never ever be used and uh, should never be invented and they should never be used. Um, so he was um, in a, a doyen of peace campaigners in in the science world, and his widow when he died, um, Eileen Bernal. <coughs> Uh, set up or, or inspired the setting up of this scholarship. Uh, in, I think there were two actually uh, set up through what was then called the World Peace Council, uh, which was a, a, an organisation uniting various national peace councils, and particularly, obviously, in Eastern Europe, had official support. Um, so they they provided the finance for it, and uh, yeah, I I. Applied, was lucky enough to get it, and uh, invited to a uh, university in Leipzig, which was at the time known as the Karl Marx University. How did you get there? Did you travel by plane, or did you go through the... How did you cross the inner German border? Well, yes, getting there, we travelled by plane, and I just managed... I, I've not kept a consistent diary, but on that... That I looked up what I'd written at the time in a, a bit of a scribble in a diary that I found, and found we we, we flew we flew to um, what was then Berlin Schönefeld, which was the um, East German airport. So we avoided all the uh, mm. frontier uh, problems by landing in East Germany. But I gather from the note I saw, we waited seven and a half hours for some. Iraqi plane to take us there. I have no memory of it, but it was obviously a, a rather circuitous way of going, but did a, meant we arrived officially in the GDR, which I suppose is what they wanted to achieve. 
And when you're in the GDR, you continue to study history. Yes. And um, what is it particularly that you were studying? Um, well, when I when I went to uh, went to Leipzig, my intention was to study the origins of the Cold War on the ground, and Leipzig was a good place to do that because it actually been um, whereas the Red Army got to uh, Berlin uh, first. The, the American army had actually uh, uh, got to Leipzig first, and then there were the negotiations over the sort of division of Germany and division of the zones of Germany, not, not an intention to di- divide the country, uh, but a division into zones of occupation. And um, Leipzig was put in the Soviet zone, so the Americans had to back off and the Soviets came in. So that was rather a special situation there. And uh, it, it sort of offered uh, 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 it offered possibilities of looking at a comparison between the two occupations, although the, the American occupation was only obviously for an initial period of time. Um, but really, uh, uh, I was somewhat stymied in the, in the work that I was able to do. Uh, I mean, I could do a certain amount on the ground, but uh, I found the sort of decisive documents, if like the big, the strategic decisions, and the uh, were all taken in Moscow or New York. So actually, although I was on the had my feet on the ground where it was all happening, uh, I really needed to be uh, looking at sources uh, in in those capitals. So uh, that caused a bit of a problem. And how does life in Leipzig at this point compare with your experiences of life in Moscow? Very similar. Um, well, I think the, the, the great contrast was it suddenly was like being in contrast to Moscow, where, as I say, the, the, the food and the, the things in the shops it was so scarce uh, that in, uh, in Leipzig and indeed in Berlin, but in, 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 in East Germany and GDR as a whole, I, I, I called it consumer socialism. It was the, the shops, they weren't brimming over as in London, but they were well stocked. Supplies were there, never sort of totally empty shelves. Um, and people seemed to, people did enjoy, uh, there was a marked uh, upping in the standard of living, if you like, compared to, to Moscow. And you also take part in... Um Radio Berlin's Letters from Leipzig. Yes, yes. I um, well, I got invited well, when I when I arrived in, in Leipzig. I was uh, it, it was because this was an official sort of scholarship. Um, there was a committee of welcome. Uh, we had a ceremony at which the British ambassador, well, the British ambassador's representative was was uh, present, and. Uh, uh, the the big wigs of the university and I was sort of accepted into this scholarship position. So, and I think at that stage the, the Radio Berlin uh, had come along too. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the first-hand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week.
important to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. To witness that and to do a, a news item about it, uh, an interview with me, and that sort of got us talking. Would I like to do something more regularly with them? They were looking for, they wanted an English person's view of living in the GDR. So I thought that sounded rather fun and interesting. And uh, I said, yes. And so I produced, uh, we really modelled on um, uh, on the Letter from America, which was very popular in Britain at the time, Alistair Cook. Cook yeah. um, I thought well, I'd do a letter from Leipzig. <laughs> uh, rather big-headed to think I rival Alistair Cook, and I don't think I did. But um, so that's what I did, a letter from Leipzig. Leipzig. I, I forget if it was weekly, bi-weekly, whatever. I seem to have... Uh, I, I did quite a lot of them um, and um, would either travel to Berlin and record them in the uh, studios of the uh, radio station or um, there was a local radio um, studio in, in Leipzig I could go along to if I wasn't able to get up to Berlin. Who was the audience for Letters from Leipzig? Well, this was a, it, well, yeah, it's a rather circular process really because it's their foreign, like the BBC World Service, it was their foreign effectively, uh, propaganda radio. So they, um, I mean, if I'd, if I'd uh, decided that I hated the GDR and everything about it, I don't expect they really wanted me <laughs> to do it. But because I was very open-minded, very interested, uh, and very supportive in, in a lot of the things that I saw going on, um, uh, you know, I think um, they very much liked my style of, of, of writing and uh, um, talking. And, uh, yeah, it uh, went on for a long time doing that. Uh, I mean, one of the things, uh, looking back over some of the texts that I, I managed to dig up, um, I, I did, uh, Leipzig, of course, was the uh, centre for the International Trade Fair, which at the time was the main meeting place. There was a fair in Poland as well, uh, I think, uh, but uh, it was the main meeting place for East-West Trade. So Leipzig Fair happened uh, once a year, or was it twice a year, but the main was one main exhibition. And people that wanted to trade with the Eastern Bloc had to be there, really. Manufacturers of, of, of machinery, whatever it was. Um, and so there's this huge influx into Leipzig on the, when the fair happened. Uh, and also one of the things I did was was right about that and actually go around and interview uh, English companies that were there and say, you know, how are you getting on and so on, find out they were getting some orders and so on. That was all uh, uh, of interest. Uh, and um, so I enjoy I think I probably did that before I actually started doing the letters from Leipzig. Um, I did that for the first fair that I uh, came across. Um but it was a so it was an exciting sort of melting point, uh, meeting point of of East and West trade, 
and I wrote about that. When I arrived in uh, the GDR, um, it was the time of the of the of the uh, putsch against Allende in in Chile. So the situation in Chile was there were any progressive people or they had them locked up in one of the central stadiums. Uh, I can't remember all the details now. There's a very famous singer called Victor Yar and they broke his uh, broke his hands in front of the crowd in the stadium and they, they just shot people indiscriminately and finished them off. Uh, so this was Pina, the coming to power of Pinochet in Chile. And there was a huge uh, solidarity movement in the GDR uh, in support of the uh, uh, Democrats in Chile who were being persecuted in this way. Um, and I remember writing about that. It was something, obviously, that I felt very sympathetic to. Um, and um, it was uh, great to see that movement of largely young people actually out on the streets uh, collecting for Chilean refugees. And actually where I lived... I had um, a neighbour who was South African. Uh, these were this was the d- darkest um, days of apartheid. Uh, it was a, a lady. She had been tortured in South Africa, and finally had escaped and managed to get into exile and been accepted in GDR and was doing was in the university as well, doing whatever. Um, but uh, and then in my language group because uh, I didn't know German when I arrived, so my first thing was three months of intensive German. Uh, and once again, this was a course. Uh, it was called the Herder Institute in Leipzig, a course for foreigners who were going to study. And we had in on the course a whole mixture of uh, people from all over uh, the world. But in particular, I remember. One chap, little chap, he was, and you thought, oh, well, who's he? And it turned out he'd been a um, commander of the um, Viet Cong, yeah. uh, and the war was now over, and he'd been sent over to gain qualifications and so on, which uh, I think he found quite difficult, a very different life that he was he- heading for to master a European language. But uh, yeah. So it was rubbing shoulders with people from uh, really some of the most troubled parts of the world who were being supported uh, by the uh, GDR regime. Um, yeah, so that was that was. Uh, I don't think I actually wrote a letter from Leipzig about that. But then, of course, my history interest was such that I visited. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of places of historical interest. I went to Weimar, for instance, and wrote about Weimar, which is a wonderful town. But I also went to Buchenwald, which was one of the uh, main concentration camps that the Nazis had set up there. Uh, so wrote about that, and uh, the other particular place I remember of uh, which affected me deeply was. Um, visiting Nordhausen, which uh, uh, was uh, a place where Hitler uh, was had moved after his, the, the British and um, 
America's thing, of bombed sites where they were testing new rockets, what rockets. This was going to be his wonder weapon, the V1s and the V2s, which came over London. And um, so they moved it to Nor moved the manufacturing and experimentation facility deep under a mountain near Nordhausen and imported thousands of slave labourers from the concentration camps to, to work on developing these caverns and then on servicing the, the industry. Uh, so horrifying, terrible, terrible story. Thousands died just of malnutrition and overwork and, and the salty, damp conditions um, in which they had to exist. So, yeah, that, uh, you know, that was something to write about, both as an interesting place to visit and the historical... And the fact now, of course, it's been turned into a, a, a memorial and there's a monument being constructed, I think, when I went there. Um, and uh, that tied in with the story that the, uh, the GDR regime wanted uh, to tell the world that they, had, uh, they were the part of Germany that had thoroughly... Uh, conquered the Nazi past. It's rather, rather ironic now that the AFD should be flourishing in that area when, at the time, uh, the whole emphasis was on the uh, making the population understand what Nazism and fascism had done. Could you imagine yourself living in the GDR on a permanent basis, or did you always know that you were just there? on this scholarship for a limited amount of time? Um, no, I did. Um, I was on the scholarship and then I, the scholarship ran out and I stayed on doing a bit of teaching of English. Uh, and therefore there was a sort of small community of English teachers uh, who had stayed there and married there, made their lives there. And yeah, at one point I think I thought maybe that would be quite a, uh, sort of comfortable life in a way and quite uh, not without interest um, but uh, yeah I, f I still felt it would be a sort of exile and of course what we haven't talked about yet is the border <laughs> the, the border uh, and, the, and the getting in and out as a British citizen I had the ability to uh, with, with a visa which I, um, which I was given a sort of generous visa provision because of my sort of status as this scholarship person. Um, so I could go into West Berlin. I could go to West Germany and come back. Uh, they couldn't get out of the country at all, the ordinary uh, GDR citizen. And that was a, I mean, that was uh, whatever the explanation for it, it was an impossible situation for people really to be locked into this small country and uh, they could travel to Hungary and lot, traditionally at that time um, uh, GDR uh, families were used to holiday on Lake Balaton and things like that but um, they couldn't go west and of course half their families were in the west as well and when you went, uh, so I, when I crossed the border, as I did many times at the, in Berlin, it was an eerie feeling. And of course, Berlin was divided. So you got on, and I saw it, if you like, the mirror image that most people were seeing from West Berlin. Um, so you'd get on an underground, uh, U-Bahn, 
and uh, you, you'd go, be going from one station to another, I can't, uh, and suddenly you'd go through a ghost station, which had been sealed off. There'd just be, there'd just be a soldier on the, with a sort of rifle at the ready guarding the station, but because it, at that point, presumably it had crossed under into West Berlin, all the entrance could go that way. It was guarded and closed off. It was a really... And then coming through, I came... I used to cross mostly at the Friedrichstrasse, uh, which was the underground and, and, and rail link, as opposed to the uh, uh, Checkpoint Charlie, which was very famous, um, which was a road crossing. Um, but, yeah, it was... It was unpleasant. It was. You knew you were going through the Iron Curtain. You really felt you were. And when I went, when I came from, I used to travel by train. I used to come home. Um, so the train, there's two ways. I could either go from when I got to Hanover. I could either keep on the train that would go go straight on because I came from Buchholz, Holland. Uh, train to uh, Berlin, or I could change and get a train that went to Leipzig, one of the very few trains that still sort of went across the border in a different place. Um, and you would come, you would, whichever way you went, you sort of, you'd see this, the wire of the border, the, the, uh, the watchtowers and the, and the barren land that was ploughed and mined. It was, it was really, rather spine chilling to, to see that. If you went to, if I went the Berlin way, then there was a, well, I think it was a Wolfsburg. You went past the big VW works at Wolfsburg, uh, and just beyond there, uh, before you entered, well, as you entered, uh, the GDR and came up to the frontier, the, they would lock all the doors of the train. The GDR guards would board the train. There would be the train would stop. They'd run huge Alsatian sniffer drugs under the train, um, and you know everything would stop while they were doing these things and see it effectively seal the train off because the train obviously went to West Berlin first. Yeah. So the, this was sealing the train to go through uh, East Germany. And because I then had the strange, almost unique experience of going into West Berlin and then going into East Berlin. So, but um, most people on it would have been going just to West Berlin, and so they were sealed off from West Berlin. And each, each carriage would have a guard at the end of the carriage with rifle and machine gun, whatever it was. So it was, yeah, it was something you didn't want to really do too often it was it was it was really a weird feeling and fright a frightening feeling i suppose seems to me you can still visit the palace of tears at friedrichstrasse now so the funnel shaped building that brought you in take you down the corridor to the train station and uh even in 2020 it's, it's still a, a, an ominous place yes uh, should we say i mean they built it to be ominous in well, its architecture, you know, <laughs> let alone the people going through it. Yes, yes, I can imagine. I mean, it, it, it was uh, sort of more rough and ready in those days, but uh, so certainly did you, ominous. Did you talk to 
local Germans in East Germany to see what they felt about things? What were, yes, were they did, open yes, or closed, or did they trust you to talk to you? Well, yes, I th- well, yes and no, and it's only in retrospect that um, uh, one sort of well, that I wonder sort of. Uh, you know, you wonder who was spying on you and who wasn't. Um, I'm sure there were people. It would be strange if there weren't, uh, given the system, uh, who were sort of watching out. But um, no, I, I had lots of um, uh, East German contacts, and a lot of it was just purely as one might have contacts anywhere and go out and you know, have a meal together or go and do something, go to the park or whatever. And, and um, um, yeah, I think, but with certain things, I mean, there was no point talking. I mean, people just felt, I think there was no point talking about they'd like to go to, you know, visit West Germany or whatever, because it just was off the cards. So, and I guess a little bit, what was the point? Uh, you know, it was, a, if you like, a dangerous topic as well, because people did abscond, and I knew people that did. Uh, and uh, I ha- had a friend who um, had the possibility of going to West Germany to visit a relative or had a visa in some way. I remember the conversation and it being, because I generally thought, felt that what the GDR was attempting to do was quite an, a noble uh, cause and that uh, that they were doing a lot of things right, but on this one, I remember this conversation and, think, and sort of thinking, well, you know, if I had if I was here and I had the visa to get out, I, I don't think the decision would be very difficult. Simply that nobody likes to feel caged into a small area. Like yes. This. So, um, and in fact, this person did take that decision subsequently. So you do end up returning from the GDR. Yes. Um, but still your path lies east. Yes. And you join Northie. Yes. Well, that was um, that was not inevitable. I, I would have quite liked to have continued to do something that reflected my knowledge of the GDR and so on. And I, but I was offered the job, which took me back to my initial Russian experience. So I had to sort of reconjure Russian language after having overlaid it with German language. And, um, whereas when I'd gone to Germany, I, a lot of the people on, on, the, on the German course I could talk, would talk to in Russian because we didn't have enough German at the yeah. time. By the end of it, the Russian was getting rather rusty. But anyway, so I was offered the possibility of working uh, in London with the um, Russian news agency. And, uh, yeah, it seemed uh, a no-brainer, really, to take that and uh, see where it would lead. To tell us a little bit about the news agency, what its purpose was, where it was based, and what you were doing. Right. Uh, Novosti is um, uh, a, a news agency. It was a Soviet news agency, is, as far as I know, uh, still, um, and it was like the features agency <coughs> of, of, as opposed to the the main news Reuters equivalent, which was called TASS, uh, which had all the official announcements. But uh, 
uh, Novosti uh, did more on features of Soviet life and so on. Um, it also um, hosted foreign journalists. So there was, a, the, there was that side. If you wanted, as a foreign journalist, to go to the Soviet Union and write something, uh, one of the ways in which you could do it was apply through Novosti, which just means news, by the way, Novosti. Um, so... Uh, it also was tasked with really spreading positive news about the Soviet Union and what was going on. Um, and so every now and again, the agency would um, be told, or the London office would be told, to uh, it needed to do a... <clears throat> supplement on Soviet life and economy and so on. And the ones I remember, I don't know if it was just, I think probably we did some stuff with the Financial Times, but in particular, uh, The Guardian used to publish uh, this these supplements, perhaps once a year or twice a year. And the Russians really loved that because they could... It was advertorial, so they could decide sort of what went in it. And they could have a piece by Brezhnev or a piece by a minister of this and a minister of that. So the great and good would have space to show how great and good they were. <laughs> um, and there's a very funny story about that because uh, I... I working in the press section, had to help put these supplements together. And so the edict from Moscow, and once again, we, we talked about, you know, the insight into Russian life when when the students were sort of cheating officially, officially cheating at exams. And this is sort of a, another, another one of these quaint sort of uh, characteristics, perhaps, of Russian life that... Uh, we had to publish these supplements and the the articles would come and they might be far too long. And some of them could be tapered to edited. But of course, if they were very important people, that was a very dangerous thing to do, to cut the words of some top official. And what I remember was a guy called Admiral Gorshkov, uh, he was the admiral of the Soviet fleet, which I think in the 80s had um, was building up to, they were building their fleet up to sort of to be uh, a very powerful naval force. And he was the man behind this. And this particular supplement, which was being published in The Guardian, um, he had the lead article or a lead article. And I, so I was over at The Guardian editing thing, trying getting it into shape and sort of whatever. Went back to my bosses in, uh, uh, I think it was called a chief editor or whatever he was, uh, the Russian guy that uh, worked at the agency, who was, was the head of the agency in London, and um, said, you know, here we are. And, and basically, as long as it looked good, that was fine. Except I said, well, actually, Admiral Gorshkov is, is twice as 
twice as long as we've got any space to... We've got four pages, and he's written four pages. You know, we've got lots of other stuff to put in. Oh, you can't cut. You can't cut Gorshkov. You can't cut Gorshkov. Quite impossible. Man, you know, he was the top man. Uh, anyway, so this... I, I can't remember all the details. I just remember in the end, sitting in... Being in the Guardian, in those days one had uh, basically working with paper and scalpels, uh, not on screens. And uh, it came to the publication deadline. It was going to be published the next day or whatever. And Gorshkov was still far too long. So what are we going to do? We can't, you know, no one back there would say that it could be. But on the other hand, he had to fit on the page. So I edited Admiral Gorshkov. <laughs> I cut him severely. <laughs> and you survived. And I survived, yes. I uh, didn't have a trip on a submarine that didn't ever come up again. <laughs> uh, well, the truth, of course, he is a bit like with the exam. Probably nobody ever noticed. And I mean, it was in English anyway. Um, I got, if it ever went across Gorshkov's desk or in one of his minions' desks, they'd just think, oh, there is a nice big picture of one. They weren't going to count the words, but no one was going to take responsibility for cutting him. So I took responsibility for cutting him, and it was published the next day. And as part of your role at Novosti, you get to travel back to the Soviet Union. Yes, well, I developed uh, it's something I sort of developed because this sort of just doing the day to day was was fine. But they they wanted um, foreign journalists to come and see what they were doing, and well, obviously the positive things they were doing. Uh, so part of my job was to cultivate. Uh, I didn't really do the hosting, although that was done by the Russian side. But um, I um, did have lots of contacts in in the in the British press. So I thought, well, if I'm going to have contacts in the British press, then I'm going to I could publish some stuff myself. So I put up the idea that you know why couldn't I go and see some of these things and. I'd, I'd write the article and um, the chap in charge of the uh, London office at the time was was um, quite an affable chap and thought it was a good idea as well. So I ended up doing numerous trips to the Soviet Union uh, to look at and I would put in a wish list of what I wanted to see which was basically based on what I knew I could get published. So I steered very clear of political stuff, but I was very much into the technological and the uh, medical uh, and space. Now, space was a huge thing at the time because Salyut was going round. Russians were having cosmonauts staying longer and longer in space. I mean, they were very active in space. There wasn't a lot <coughs> happening on the, on the Western side. So that was a huge story as they developed their rockets and space station and so on and so forth. Um, so that was a lovely, that was a great thing to be involved in, very positive. Um, the other big issue at the time uh, that I was there uh, was the East-West gas pipeline. Now, this was something that was of vital importance to Western Europe, Germany in particular, but to ourselves as well. And... Um, but which the Americans decided was aiding and abetting the Reds in their beds uh, and shouldn't be. And President Reagan said no. Well, Mrs. Thatcher had come on the scene by then 
and our uh, we still had uh, engineering and shipyards on the Clyde at the time. Uh, and uh, John Brown Shipyards were the main contractor for miles upon miles of this pipeline, which was to carry the gas. Mm. Huge contract worth millions of pounds. So Britain didn't want to lose that. So Mrs. Thatcher, despite, you know, as in that uh, uh, poster uh, that was around at the time, big friends with Reagan but not in terms of the pipeline. So she stood up to him and said, no, we're, we're going to go on with this. He wanted it cancelled. And she said, no, we're not going to cancel it. So there was a big British interest in, you know, because we were contributing that technology to it. And there was always this, will it, won't it be completed? Will it be sanctioned and not, uh, you know, not, can the Russians manage to do it on their own? Are they actually managing to get on with it? Have they got the right technology for the welding? And uh, so, so it, it provided, it was a daily story in the press. And uh, so I got out to the pipeline and um, there's, a, there's a picture of me descending from some big cross-country vehicle in my uh, shapka. So a fur hat, big coat, because it's bloody cold, and um, watching them and interviewing them, uh, constructing the pipeline, uh, which meant you've got big sections of pipe, and then uh, which often was across um, sort of permafrost, which melted a bit in the summer. So it was a, a very difficult technological thing to make it stable enough to... <laughs> And then you had to weld it together. So the welding process was absolutely uh, um, uh, crucial to the success of the pipeline. Was if you welded it with a little hole, gas would go out, the whole thing would explode. So, um, yeah, and the Russians, I think at the time, had developed on their own because no one would, because, because of the embargoes that Reagan imposed. They couldn't buy the latest welding equipment in the West. They developed this machine that took the pipe and welded it round. So there I was watching this in the middle of the uh, tundra. Um, and then I think I interviewed the uh, I think I, I interviewed the minister who was responsible back in Moscow and came back with that story, which went everywhere. Really, it was uh, fantastic. Um, and uh, I'd got, I'd taken a, a camera, I got some lovely photos. Um, it was quite a phot photogenic scene on the tundra with a pipeline, the machines working, the men all in their, in their furs and their hats and flaps over their ears to, against the frost. Um, and that was published a whole number of um, publications, but the one I, that, did it in the most glorious Technicolor was a magazine called Now. Nobody ever sort of tapped you on the shoulder and said, look, here you are going east on a fairly good communications there and said, you know, can you help us out from a UK intelligence service? Uh, <laughs> no, no, they didn't. Um, I, I think, um, no, it's uh, from neither side did they tap me on the shoulder, <laughs> which was really rather disappointing in a way, you know, that would have been... Uh, would have perhaps I just really wasn't important enough. 
the disappointed would-be spy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it would have been nice to think I had that status, even if I probably wouldn't have agreed. But you did go to Star City, didn't you, when you were talking about the yes. space and the aviation side of things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that was a huge thing because I don't... It was prohibited... Ter- you know, it was it was a, a territory to which no, no one was admitted, Um there may have been the other odd journalists that had got there, I, I, I don't know, um, but certainly not in from the UK. And yes, I, I was taken to Star City. I actually developed a, a, a close friendship with one of the Russian journalists who was in the, uh, in the agency in Moscow, who loved going about and sort of and really helped me for, uh, on, on these uh, visits. Um, was as interested as me to, to get to these rather, um, unreachable places. And, um, I mean, that was incredible to talk to the cosmonauts. So I, I, at this distance of time, can't really remember any detail. I remember going into the chamber where they used to whiz them around in like a, centrifuge. Yeah, like a centrifuge. It was a centrifuge and they had to do so much of that. Obviously, as training for weightlessness, and it was it was a time when they were really experimenting with how long man could stay in space, and uh, uh, so it, it, that was sort of central to things. Um, and I think I spoke to I think it was Leonov I spoke to up to that point was the man had been in space the longest time, and um, I did an interview with him. Um, and once again, came back with pictures from Star City, Svizny got a, got a dock, uh, which no one else had. And uh, that also uh, published in a whole number of places. Can I just add another yes, one from here, from here? Because I was talking about the colleague in, in Russia, that, that um, uh, the colleague in, in uh, Moscow who uh, helped organize these trips that I did. And he was a great Siberian man, Sibiryak, and uh, he loved Siberia. And um, in great Russian tradition, he would um, organize his holidays to be dropped off by helicopter. He had good connections. <laughs> you needed good connections in Russia, but he had excellent connections. Uh, be dropped off by helicopter, the sort of head of the river Yenisei, and then he'd canoe and uh, canoe down for miles upon miles to civilization, where he was dropped off, there was nothing, shooting and hunting, um, you know, living off the land. So he, I didn't do anything. He didn't involve me in anything quite as, um, uh, as, as adventurous as that. But he did, uh, he suggested to me we go to a, re- a region called Tumen, which is more or less on the borders of Mongolia. Mm. The tu- well, at the time, it was the Tumen uh, Republic, Soviet Republic, or whatever, no, uh, be part of the Russian Federation. Um, <clears throat> and that was, uh, I, I, once again, I don't think any, because it was, if you like, borderlands, uh, it wasn't normal for Western journalists to go there. Um, we, it really was um, sort of grassland country, as you would imagine, Mongolia. If you imagine Mongolia, and this was what the area was like, uh, there was um, 
I think part of the story was that there was gas deposits there and so on. But we we ended up going sort of traveling in, in, in jeeps or Soviet equivalent of jeeps um, to visit the herdsmen. And I've got pictures of, of, of their yurts and sort of the whole family sitting outside. I was, you know, the usual sort of British uh, adventurer, uh, petrified that I was going to have to sort of be offered the delicacy of sheep's eyes or something. But actually, I, I wasn't. But we did, we did feast. They did go out to the herd and uh, bring a sheep and kill it. And, and um, we feasted on that. Well, that was all right. It was normal lamb but so that was um yeah fascinating uh, experience and uh, of course i was able also to report on sort of what they were doing in the area to try and yeah to to bring the area up in in terms so that that was yeah w- wonderful adventure that when did you leave novosti well i i, I left novosti in the mid or early 80s, um, I got, although I had this tremendous freedom to do these trips and write about them <coughs> and was generally very interested in the, oh, uh, yeah, very interested in what I was writing about. And one thing I haven't mentioned is the medical side. I did a lot of medical journalism and uh, broke the story in Britain, actually, of... Um, uh, Dr. Fyodorov, who had a clinic in Moscow, was the first person to do the eye operation to correct short-sightedness. So he had, he began actually, so they said, by using Soviet, which weren't actually so brilliant, they weren't exactly Wilkinson sort of razor blades to cut the eye. Uh, so you change the shape of the eye so that changes uh, so that you can direct the line of vision, if you like, onto the back of the eye again, because it's, when you have short sight or whatever, it's falling in the aqueous fluid. Um, anyway, he'd done his original experiments. By the time I went and saw him, he had a skyscraper block in Moscow. He was very famous. Um, and he had queues of patients because they weren't very, they didn't have contact lenses. I, I think we were starting to have contact lenses, probably the glass ones. Uh, they didn't have that option. They hadn't developed those. So it was either funny old glasses or you went to see Fyodorov if you had the, uh, I don't know quite how it worked, but the if, contacts. if you had the contacts, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and he actually, um, so he built this big institute and I was able to go there and he was just constructing a sort of conveyor belt system by which patients came along and it wasn't a robot, it was a doctor doing the operation and then the next one did it. But yeah, he, he was doing it. And I, I found a, an English chap that was very nearly blind actually and had gone out and been operated on by a field of, and uh, he, he, his sight was made uh, sort of restored to pretty normal and he was absolutely over the moon of course and came back and that went into what was then the Daily Mirror and to a whole load of other papers uh, on that angle of this English man having had the miracle cure in Moscow and what that was all about. So you moved back, you're based in London and you set up new markets monthly eventually. Yes, eventually. Uh, well, when the Soviet Union, when 
the, when Gorbachev took over and started his reforms, um, of course, first of all, the Soviet Union didn't collapse. He tried to do the reforms and the, uh, all that, that period of upheaval. It seemed too good an opportunity. I hadn't had anything to do with Russian affairs for a whole number of years, but that seemed to be a, a sort of a little bit of a gift for me because I had the Russian knowledge, the background, and it looked like things were opening up. So here was the democratization that a lot of us uh, would have wished for. And um, so, and also, of course, in opening up, British companies uh, were very interested in furthering trade and getting in there um, and taking advantage of the new relaxation. And uh, so, in fact, uh, the, there has always been an organisation called the Chamber, the British Soviet Chamber of Commerce, British Russian Chamber of Commerce now, um, to further trade. And so uh, I ended up, uh, or I, I took the initiative to say, why don't we do a magazine? You could sponsor it, I'll do it, and we'll, we'll further trade links. So I put a proposal to the British, uh, British as it then was, British Soviet Chamber of Commerce, which in those days, in, in order to do trade with uh, the Soviet Union, companies had to go through the official channels, and the official channels went through the British Soviet or the Soviet British Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. And we launched British Soviet Business. Uh, and in fact, uh, the first issue had... Uh, Good wishes from Margaret Thatcher on page one, <laughs> and uh, you know, official blessing of uh, the British government. Uh, and I should say that in the show notes for this episode, uh, we have pictures of some of the uh, fascinating exhibits that Alan's brought with him today uh, from East Germany through the Soviet Union uh, at all points of his career. So great stuff to have a look at, at there. Of all your experiences in the Soviet Union and in East Germany, which do you remember most fondly? I mean, the irony is that <clears throat> I went to the Soviet Union because I was interested in the politics and the uh, concept of creating this socialist society but what I gained from it was uh, a love of the Russianness of it. Not not that the not some, lots of negatives to the Russianness of it, of course, but the Russian land and people, if you like. Um, there's something very special about that. So, and it's not just the sort of endless birch forests and the whatever, but that's part of it. Um, so that remains a very fond memory, but in terms of uh, in terms of friends and and uh, having had a, a sort of wonderful time, you know, the, the, my time in the GDR was was also very memorable and very certainly nothing that I, I regret. It was very interesting, but perhaps not quite the romantic tinge that comes with memories of Russia.
And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.